Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You're about to listen to a historical episode of Dark Poutine. After episode 149, you will find Scott is no longer with the show. In an effort to maintain continuity and offer listeners as many episodes as possible, we are leaving the episodes in which he co-hosted intact. Thank you. Welcome to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host. With me as usual is my good friend, co-host, Scott Emanway. Hey, everybody. Hey, everybody. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish, as our content contains mature themes, harsh language, and graphic descriptions of violent crimes. Listener discretion is strongly advised. We're not experts on any of the topics we present, nor are we professional journalists. We're just two regular Canadians interested in the dark side of Canadian history. My nose is really clogged up with allergies tonight. Mm -hmm. Get a nosyotomy. <laughs> In this episode, we're going to talk about the as-yet-unsolved disappearance of eight-year-old Nicole Moran from the apartment building where she and her mother lived in Etobicoke, a suburb of Toronto, Ontario, in July of 1985. So she's been missing a long time, almost 33 years. No, that's sad. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. Nanaimo bar. Somebody thought I said animal bar. I saw that today. <laughs> it's pretty awesome. I thought that was good. Yeah, and it sounds delicious. An animal bar? Yeah, animal bar. Animal bars do sound good. Like animal crackers are great. Why wouldn't an animal bar? Right. Science. We've spoken about the disappearance of children here on the podcast before, in particular the Kimberly McAndrew disappearance. Mm hmm. It's a parent's worst nightmare, obviously, not knowing where your child is or whether they're safe or even alive. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Each year, police record over 100,000 missing persons in Canada. Jeez. Oh, About 60% are children. Mm. Most of these are resolved in a very short period of time, but some, like this one, remain unsolved. I can't begin to imagine the fear uh, families and friends must feel for a missing loved one's safety and what lack of closure must do to everybody's psychological health after years of wondering. Oh, I, yeah, absolutely. It would be crippling. You're the father of two girls, and I'm sure you have some thoughts on the subject of this episode. Yeah, I've, uh, I have lost Violet in a mall for like 10 minutes and that was terrifying enough yeah. like that just sheer panic running around a mall yeah. screaming her and that's name. that was for 10 minutes can you imagine yeah i can't i can't i can't imagine that sustained for months and years like it's just horrific oh the thoughts that would be going through your mind like i do not know how anybody can function in that state yeah, I've read briefly about Nicole Morin's disappearance uh, before on a number of missing children slash unsolved crime websites. Mm -hmm. 
I remember recently seeing her poster somewhere after they renewed their search a mm. couple of years ago. Mm. I thought we'd eventually do an episode about Nicole, but uh, the information about that day is really quite limited. Oh, okay. A listener of Dark Poutine, Danny G, reached out to us by way of email asking if we'd cover Nicole Moran's case. Danny is Nicole's cousin, and she was kind enough to share some details via email exchanges and a bit of audio with us expressing her thoughts. Here's part one of what she sent us. This is Danny. I just wanted to say a couple things. First of all, thank you so much for covering this case on your show. I really appreciate it. Nicole doesn't get talked about very much um, on true crime shows at all, basically. She doesn't get talked about. So I really appreciate you giving her a spotlight. I never met her, but I really wish I had. And I really wish that she was in my family's life today. Um, but she's not. So you can hear the pain in her voice. Yeah. Like, this is a cousin that she's never met, but it's a story I'm sure that's talked about in her family quite a great deal. Oh, I'm sure in, in many ways she feels as if she has met her because I'm sure the frequency and amount it has been talked about would make her feel quite close. But uh, yeah, you can absolutely hear the pain and uh, it's really, really sad to hear. Yeah, that would be a story that your parents would tell you as a kid too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. This is clearly something that means a lot to Danny and her family, and it's clear that she's thought about it a lot. We hope that we can present Nicole's story in a way that generates more knowledge of and interest in her disappearance. Mm -hmm. Here's what we know. Nicole Louise Moran was born on April 1st, 1977 to Jeanette and Art Moran. According to everyone, Nicole was a generally happy and healthy eight-year-old girl. Every picture I could find of her shows a warm and playful gap-toothed smile. She loved going to the circus and had a soft spot for McDonald's. What, what kid doesn't? Oh, what adult? Yeah. <laughs> right? On July 30th, 1985, Nicole was living with her mother in their penthouse apartment at 627 the West Mall, Etobicoke, Ontario, near Rathburn Road and Highway 427. The family had just moved back to Ontario from Amherst, Nova Scotia. Jeanette and Art were in the midst of a divorce, so Nicole's father, Art, was not living with them at the time. It's rumored that on the morning of July 30th, around 10.30, Nicole Moran took the elevator down 20 stories to the lobby of the apartment building to pick up the family's mail, returning shortly afterward. Then she got ready to go swimming with her friend. It was a pretty hot summer. According to everything that I read, it was blistering hot and lots of sweaty, humid days. Mm-hmm. Nicole got dressed in her red one-piece bathing suit with single diagonal blue and orange stripes from just under her right armpit to her left, and she was wearing a pair of lightweight, white-trimmed red slip-on canvas shoes. She was also wearing a green headband in her brown hair. Nicole had a birthmark on the right side of her forehead. Her pierced ears protruded slightly from the sides of her head. She was average size for her age, four feet tall, and weighed about 51 pounds. Nicole was excited to go swimming with her friend Jennifer at a supervised swimming pool just behind the apartment building. Jennifer buzzed for Nicole from the building's lobby at about 11 a.m. Nicole said goodbye to her mother, grabbed her peach beach towel and a white plastic shopping bag containing a purple towel, peach-colored hairbrush, blue comb, a bottle of brown suntan lotion, 
black swim goggles, green velour shorts, and a white short sleeve top. Nicole bounced out of the penthouse hallway to meet her friend, closing the door behind her. I hate this. Mm-hmm. At 11.15 a.m., the intercom buzzed again. It was Jennifer. She was asking for Nicole as she had not showed up for their play date and she was feeling impatient. <sighs> Jeanette was not very concerned at first. She had assumed the playful Nicole was just having fun riding the elevators or maybe she'd taken the stairs. Yeah. Jennifer waited another half hour. Nicole had still not arrived, so she was tired of waiting and decided to go swimming by herself and just left. Hmm. Okay. So 45 minutes have gone by. Yeah. Jeanette Moran had no idea that her daughter had still not shown up and assumed that she had just arrived in the lobby and was in the pool with Jennifer. Later in the day, Jeanette went to check on the girls at the pool, and upon finding out that Nicole had never arrived, she panicked, calling the police at about 3.30. Almost immediately, police set up some roadblocks to contain the area, but four and a half hours had passed since Nicole had left the apartment when Jeanette discovered she was missing. Oh, God. She could have been anywhere by then, including Buffalo, New York, only an hour and 33 minutes away by car, or even Detroit, just 360 kilometers away. Uh, yeah, I get, like, I'm getting anxiety and, and panic just hearing about this stuff. I was a little concerned about doing this one with you. Uh, it, it needs to be told. It's the same age as Olivia, so. Yeah, I don't think she would ever go with anybody. I had her watching some true crime the other day specifically to reinforce why you don't don't and yeah, both the girls nicole's father art who had been on a delivery run to peterborough over 130 kilometers away didn't learn of nicole's disappearance until 5 30 that evening when he spoke to jeanette mm. here's some audio of art talking about that day i found out at 5 30 actually when i came back from peterborough and when I got home, I was, in, uh, I was living in a basement apartment in Mississauga, and I got a call from, from my wife, and she says, Nicole's not here. What do you mean, not here? Can't find her. So I just rushed over there to the apartment, and of course, when the news was out, police, media, everybody was there. They were just like overwhelming, like just it seemed like the whole city was coming down on that apartment. And it just carried on like, you know, for two or three days straight. Like, uh, you know, if, if you give up hope, well, you know, how can you live with yourself? You can't live with yourself if you lose your child and not worry. Like when Nicole left that night, you know, July 30th, that night, we were at the back of the building at 627. And we were looking like in anything holes, like somewhere where she could, you know, be hiding or, I mean, that's too much. And then I could, you know, it was getting cold at night and you start to figure, well, you know, it's too much. So terrifying. Oh my God. You show up as the father who's uh who lives in another place and you see that, you know, there's media and police everywhere. Yeah. Oh, my heart. Some neighbors recalled seeing a blonde woman wearing white and carrying a clipboard in the halls of the building that day, uh, specifically in the penthouse hallway. Hmm. This lead didn't go anywhere. Nobody knew who that woman was. Hmm. 
cops searched the massive 429-unit building that Nicole and her mom lived in as thoroughly as they could. They looked not only in residential apartment units, but in mechanical rooms, storage units, and underground garages. There was no sign of Nicole. And some people online said it's not possible. They looked in every single apartment, but uh, we found a quote from the August 6th, 1985 Toronto Star. Police have searched every apartment in the two buildings. If tenants or owners couldn't be reached, the doors to their apartment were forcibly opened. In at least 10 instances, police gained entry by drilling the locks on doors. In one case, a crowbar was used to pry the door off its hinges. Oh, wow. They were pretty serious about yeah. finding this little girl, yeah. which is is hopeful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, it, you know, they just didn't sit around and go chitty chat with people out in the yard. I don't think I've ever heard of a situation where they were, the police were entering that, homes without uh, occupants there. But, uh, you know, if my child is missing, hell yeah. Yeah, I'm all for it. I mean, yeah. if I'm not here and there's a kid missing and they have to. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I wouldn't, I, I would be completely understanding of it. Absolutely. Only hours after Nicole vanished, Crime Stoppers posted a $1,000 award for information leading to her safe return. Three police forces searched around the clock, probably uh, would have been Toronto and OPP and RCMP. Yeah. Uh, they searched more locally using scores of neighbors and volunteers, helicopters, marine units, mounted horsemen, foot and car patrols, and specially set up a mobile broadcast system. Hmm. I guess they didn't have the internet then. Yeah, true. 85, yeah. Over 15,000 police man hours were put into the investigation, including the creation of a 20-member task force. All this, I think, is actually an appropriate response for a missing little girl. Absolutely. Of, and I'm going to say it, of any race. Absolutely. Class, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It, absolutely. More than 900 community members eventually joined the search for Nicole Moran. Nicole was a smart kid, too. She knew how to call long distance if she was in trouble far away from home and able to get to a phone, but no call came. Two days after Nicole's disappearance on August 1st, 1985, Jeanette Moran attended a vigil for her daughter where people were praying for Nicole's return. Jeanette spoke, I know someone's killed her. I can just feel it, she said to the crowd. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's kind of a... Yeah, I mean... I'm learning about this as we go, so I don't want to jump to any conclusions, but that's a bit of a... Um, it's a strange statement at that point, I yeah, think. Yeah, yeah. Not having ever been in a situation, exactly. it's impossible to say how one would react. Yep. But on the outside, it's a bit of a head scratcher. Yep. A cute little girl going missing tends to attract a lot of attention, even before the internet in 1985. This case was no exception, as it quickly got attention from news organizations around the world. Police went to Quebec to interview Art Moran's brother-in-law at one point. He'd been convicted of murdering Moran's sister, Gertrude, in 1961. Jeez. He has since passed away, and investigators found out that he had not been in Toronto when Nicole went missing. A watercolor painting was made of Nicole wearing the outfit she was last seen in. 3,000 missing posters were made up and given to Toronto-area cops. Just over a week... After Nicole Moran vanished, on August 8th, 1985, the search had not turned up a single clue. Jeez. Nicole had simply disappeared into thin air without a trace. Yikes. The reward grew to $50,000 for any information leading to her return. 
Police took down their roadblocks and stopped their canine searches in the area. Cops encouraged people to conduct private searches of their own in properties and other places they frequented. They were told to look in bushes, garages, sheds, and wells, anywhere where a young girl may be, quote, hiding. On August 29, 1985, the Toronto Crime Stoppers had sent out thousands of missing posters to police in the U.S. and Canada. Nicole Louise Moran has not been seen since by her friends and family or anyone else that we're aware of. Oh, boy. Throughout the intervening years, there have been numerous leads that have not panned out, but nothing solid. There is so little information available that this case is full of rabbit holes, and once you're in one, it's a pretty wild ride to the bottom. Hmm. Yeah, as they usually are. There had been other little girls who had disappeared in the years previous and afterward uh, in the Toronto area. All of them had been found dead. Nine-year-old Christine Jessup disappeared from her home in October 1984, the year before Nicole vanished. After school on October 3rd, Christine Jessup was dropped off at home by her school bus. She went to a local convenience store and bought some bubblegum. She never showed up at the park where she'd arranged to meet a friend. Nearly three months later, on New Year's Eve, her body was found. Investigators determined that she'd been sexually assaulted and murdered soon after her abduction. Oh, my heart. Jeez. In a weird coincidence of naming Christine Jessup's 25-year-old next-door neighbor, Guy Paul Moran, no relation to Nicole, was convicted of Christine's murder. He was later exonerated by way of DNA evidence. Mm -hmm. I remember that. Jessup's murder has never been solved after Guy Moran's release, but perhaps this is somehow linked to the disappearance of Nicole Moran, hmm. where Christine went missing and Nicole went missing. They're a little further apart, like three hours away from each other. Oh, okay. As we learn with ear ons, it's typically starting off anyways closer. Where your stomping grounds yeah. are. Yeah, exactly. Even earlier in 1983, a nine-year-old girl named Sharon Morningstar Keenan went missing from her Toronto home. Her body was later found stuffed into a refrigerator in a room in a boarding house rented to a man named Dennis Melvin Howe. This was at 482 Brunswick Avenue in Toronto. Sharon had been sexually assaulted, strangled, and crammed into a garbage bag before put, being put into the fridge. Howe also vanished and has not been seen since despite an intensive manhunt at the time. Oh, interesting. He was last seen at a bus stop waiting for a Greyhound to Winnipeg just days after Sharon's murder. Oh, wow, okay. In their search, cops even exhumed a body they thought might have been Howe, buried under an assumed name. It wasn't him. But what if this guy was still laying low somewhere in Toronto? Mm -hmm. He could be responsible for Nicole's disappearance two years later. Yeah, yeah. Dennis Melvin Howe is still on the run and on the RCMP's most wanted list. He would be in his late 70s today. And here's an interesting development in that particular individual. In 2008, a man calling himself Van Ringo and Van Giringo on other sites posted twice on an unsolvedcanada.ca thread about Howe. His post began with the words, Sharon Morningstar Keenan, please remember that name. This man claimed he had employed Dennis Melvin Howe, a man he knew as Tommy Ross, in Boise, Idaho, in 1998. <laughs> the poster claimed he'd been watching America's Most Wanted that same year and called the number on the screen to turn Tommy in. Tommy claimed he was originally from Canada and possibly came through Washington State. He smoked and drank beer and would call people turkey, as Howe had been known to as well. 
Plus, he fit the description really well. If he okay. came through Washington State, then he would have he would have done so through the uh, through here the West Coast. Yeah. Yep. According to Van Ringo, two burly men showed up with bulges in their jackets and took Tommy away. Van Ringo goes on to say he believes that Tommy Ross, a.k.a. Dennis Melvin Howe, never made it back to Canada. He theorizes that Dennis Melvin Howe was thrown naked from the airplane carrying him and his captors back. I guess an act of vigilante justice. He doesn't believe these men were cops at all. That makes no sense. Exactly. It makes absolutely no sense. He also said that he felt cheated out of the $150,000 reward. Really? Yeah. Van Ringo. We can't even be sure if this Tommy guy even existed at all. Uh, in 2013, a Toronto resident who was investigating the Sharon Keenan murder tipped off the RCMP about, about Van Ringo and his online claims. Mm -hmm. And they decided to investigate this guy's claims further. And they found his real name to be Robert James Miller an artist and eccentric living with his Canadian wife just outside of Boise. The age-enhanced photo of Howe and Miller are strikingly similar, and this is what piqued the interest of the investigators. Yeah. This guy looks a lot like the police believe Dennis Melvin Howe looks now. As soon as you commented about a man named Van Ringo posting on Canadian true crime... My my you, initial instinct. You think it's him? My initial instinct was it's him, especially giving such outlandish specifics about what he thinks happened to him. Canadian cops look at him, as do the FBI. They take fingerprints and all that sort of jazz, and then they go away. Uh, only to then come back later? No. Nope. Oh, well, why would they? They I don't mean, think it's him. Really? Yep. Okay. So he later showed reporters a duffel bag he claimed that belonged to Howe, but we're unsure of what came of his story. So 2013 is the last time this guy shows up in the news. Oh, okay. Is he Dennis Melvin Howe? We don't know. Or very convincingly, uh, yeah. this Miller fella. The news article is in our show notes, so you can read it for yourselves. Here's one thing that I found really interesting. A simple Google search of the nickname Van Ringo brought me to a Roblox user account of the same name. Uh -oh. Roblox is a massively multiplayer online social gaming platform meant for children. Yep. Some parents and others online have alleged that Roblox has attracted pedophilic predators who groom children through the app's chat interface. We're not sure that the Van Ringo posting in Unsolved Canada and the Roblox account are related at all, but the coincidence sort of struck me in my research. Wow. It's interesting that someone chose this specific username when it's already been connected to one predator by association. Yeah, yeah. The quote on the Roblox profile reads, I kill you first, then someone please kill me. This is creepy for me because my daughters used to play Roblox a lot and we um, felt uncomfortable with it and we had them delete it and stop playing it on the Xbox. And Violet is currently right now, my oldest daughter, who's about to turn 11 in June, she's currently right now doing a school TED Talk and the topic she chose is the dangers of Roblox. Wow, that's, that's great. Yeah, it, so they were hearing all this makes me go like, oh, we made the right decision. There you go. Nothing else when you searched up Van Ringo? Just that one. And that was, that was more than enough. Yeah. On July 25th, 1986, almost a year to the day of Nicole's disappearance, another young Toronto girl went missing. And this was 11-year-old Allison Parrott. 
There are some interesting parallels in that case as well. From a Wikipedia article on the Allison Parrot case, at about 11 o'clock on the morning of July 25, 1986, Allison received a phone call at her Summerhill Avenue home in Midtown Toronto. A male caller claiming to be a photographer asked her to meet him at the University of Toronto's Varsity Stadium, where he said he would be taking publicity photos of her and her teammates. Allison, a member of the Tom Longboat Club, was to participate in an international track and field meet in Plainfield, New Jersey on August 1st, exactly a week later. She phoned her mother Leslie at work and got permission to attend the session. The same man had called 11 days earlier while Allison had been at summer camp asking for her. She then left to keep the appointment, leaving word with the family housekeeper. When she failed to return home by 6 p.m., Peter and Leslie Parrott inquired among their neighbors, none of whom had seen her. They then called police. Mm. Allison was found dead two evenings later in a densely wooded area of Kings Mill Park on the Humber River. Oh, God. Just below the old mill subway station, mm. she had been raped and strangled. Oh, yeah, parents, I mean, I'm a photographer. Trust me, I would not call right. an 11-year-old child to try to say, you know, come for photos. I would call the parents, have the parents come, like, come with them. Don't, don't under any circumstances. It was assumed for a long time that these two cases were connected because they happened exactly a year apart. Yeah. Allison's murder wasn't solved until 10 years later when a man with a keen interest in running and photography named Francis Carl Roy was arrested on July 31st, 1996. Hmm. Roy had been on parole for two counts of rape at the time of Allison's murder. He was convicted by way of DNA evidence found in Allison Parrott's body. Police questioned Roy about Nicole Moran's disappearance and investigated thoroughly, but nothing came of it. Hmm. So again, there's no... No new information on Nicole. Yeah. But it seems like there's so many different avenues to travel down in this case. Yeah, yeah. Also in 1986, a tip from a psychic, one of Scott's favorite kind of people, <laughs> led to a 50-member search team scouring an area in Oakville for Nicole Moran's remains. And... They found all kinds of evidence. Nothing. Oh, you don't say. They, <laughs> Crazy. They found absolutely nothing. Oh, wow. That, that, I'm shocked. In 1988, a creep named Lovey Riddle, a career criminal from Maine who called himself the Interstate Man, claimed he had kidnapped Nicole Moran and passed her off to another man in Texas where he believed she had been killed. He also claimed to have killed 30 people over the years and participated in numerous other kidnappings of children. Police were skeptical of Lovey's stories from the beginning. They traveled to the U.S. to interview him thoroughly and found he could offer no actual details of Nicole's disappearance. Mm. From a newspaper article about Nicole Moran's disappearance, it has to have been someone in her building, Toronto Police Superintendent Tony War said. The chances of a stranger being on that elevator are very slim. When Nicole disappeared, War was a sergeant with five years under his belt in the homicide squad. What about that blonde woman holding the clipboard who was seen in the hallway at the penthouse uh, as close as 40 minutes prior to Nicole's disappearance? Well, uh, I think that would depend on how many people saw her. You know, like, could it have just been a blonde lady going to work? It's tough to nail down how much weight you can put into that without knowing more details or more specific. Art Moran, uh, Nicole's father, says that particular detail continues to haunt him. Uh, from an interview in 2015, he says, who was she and why was she on the floor at that time? Nobody seems to know. 
Yeah. I mean, it does leave an unanswered question for sure. For sure, because you do think if it was just somebody who lives there and is going to work, they would say, oh, that was me. Yeah. Oh, that was just me. I was just heading to work. Nobody but, said uh, that. Yeah. And, and, you know, I'm hesitant. Like, you, typically females uh, aren't involved in these kind of abductions, but I mean, he's listening to some uh, Canadian true crime podcasts recently. And, uh, you know, it, it one of them covered a boyfriend and girlfriend who kidnapped a young girl in the East Coast. And so it does happen. Yep. Paul Bernardo. Oh, yeah. Ugh. The yeah. guy makes me sick. Yeah, Homoka. Like, they, she was used to lure kids in. And... But how do we to explain this disappearance? I guess being creative people, you can think of anything. Yeah. Uh, one that I thought of, for example, was Nicole, they said, was, was very playful. And after she went missing, police found a notebook in her bedroom with a note in her handwriting that read, I'm going to disappear. Which may mean nothing. It might be just the musings of a little kid, which is what the cops thought. But maybe she was going to play hide and seek, do something weird for a while. Maybe this was her plan. But if that's the case, like an 11-year-old, or how old was she? Eight. Eight, okay. An eight-year-old is going to turn up somewhere. Because it's not like it's an adult and just, I'll start over, go find a job in a career, you know, somewhere in, in Alaska. Uh, so she she would turn up somewhere or she would be trapped in a fridge or something like that. And you would think then that eventually she would have been found. There would have been a smell. There would have been. Well, here's, here's the thing. In that apartment building, was there a garbage chute? People speculated online that maybe she wanted to disappear down the garbage chute, which is 20 floors, and she was killed on the way down. Yeah, but eventually like, that would start to... Not necessarily. If she fell into the trash, other people throw their trash out on top. Truck comes, carries the trash away. That's true. She might be in some landfill somewhere. But I would think at eight, she has a good idea of what that chute is. Because I'm thinking about my daughter, Olivia, who's eight. A kid would, would not be able to not inquire about what is this thing? And what, you know, can I put stuff down? You, so they, they would have a good idea. Like, no, this is just a long tube to the basement. I'm just saying, like, these, these are some of the speculations oh. that people have made. Yeah, it, it, yeah, we could go on. In 2014, around the anniversary of Nicole Moran's disappearance, Toronto police began a social media campaign complete with a Facebook and Twitter account and a reenactment video on YouTube. Hmm. Police ask, when chatting about Nicole Moran's disappearance, to use the hashtag FindNicole, all one word. Mm -hmm. Here's the audio from the uh, reenactment video on YouTube. On the morning of Tuesday, July 30th, 1985, Eight-year-old Nicole Moran simply vanished. The resulting investigation would become one of the most exhaustive and intensive police investigations in Canadian history. On that morning, at approximately 11 a.m., Nicole left her penthouse apartment at 627 the West Mall, Etobicoke, to meet a friend in the lobby, intending to go swimming. She said goodbye to her mother for what would be the last time and disappeared without a trace. She was never seen again. Police believe she was taken. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Nicole Moran, call Toronto Police or report anonymously to Crime Stoppers at 416-222-8477. Remember, with Crime Stoppers, you never need to give your name and you never need to go to court. Help us find Nicole. 
And so that's uh, 29 years after her disappearance, they uh, they started this uh, social media campaign, which mm-hmm. is kind of kind of cool. Yeah, it's really uh, great to see them still taking this very serious. Yeah, I'll post some links uh, to the social media sites on our show notes. Yeah. Police have also posted numerous age-progressed photos that we'll also post on our Facebook page, Twitter, and on darkpoutine.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. In October of 2014, prompted by the social media campaign and subsequent nightmares about an event that happened two days after Nicole Moran's disappearance, a resident of Barrie, Ontario, followed up on a tip her family had provided in 1985. Oh. And here's some audio of that. Good evening. Billy Joe Player was just 11 years old when Nicole Moran went missing, and Player tells us that she believes she heard Nicole screaming near her rural family farm just two days after she vanished. We heard just this horrible, horrible noise. This, um, it sounded like a little girl screaming for her life, basically. Billy Joe Player was only 11 when 8-year-old Nicole Moran went missing from her Etobicoke apartment building July 30th, 1985. Two days later, Player was walking out of the family barn with her mother and sister in a heavily wooded area of Springwater Township when she says they heard multiple screams. I remember my mom going, oh my goodness, that little girl just was taken from Toronto. We were right around here when we heard it. So Player says they ran to their house and called the neighbours who claimed to also hear screams. That's when her mother dialed 911. OPP investigated, but no one was ever found. I saw a photo of her. Uh, probably about four years ago, and it just brought back all the flood of memories, and then I started having nightmares again and, and hearing the screaming in my head. As an adult, player says she wanted to get in touch with Toronto police. A detective came to interview her in Hamilton about a year ago. They were in contact once more this summer after police released a reenactment of Nicole's disappearance. But she was surprised when she learned yesterday that police were scouring the area. I had no idea that they were going. Um, I was so grateful when I saw that they were, uh, just because it kind of gave me a little bit of peace, knowing that they finally were looking. So back all this forested area, um, all behind there is all forest. Police say they have now left the area after finding no new evidence, but Player still says she believes those screams belonged to Nicole. Yeah, interesting. Very. So that search turned to be fruitless as well. But how many years? A forested area, though. Hypothetically, if there was a yep. small body there, animals, the body could be so, the bones so spread out and everything. But hmm. Sadly, whether Nicole is found or not, her mother passed away in 2007 without knowing what happened to her daughter. Oh, oh God, that's got to be the worst. Just your whole life, no conclusion. Our hope is that our little podcast will draw some more attention to Nicole Moran's disappearance. And maybe someone who hears it will remember something that they can share to help find Nicole. Oh, please do. Please do. If you know or have heard anything. We'd like to be able to give the Moran family some closure Especially if it's something like finding Nicole alive, that would be amazing. Oh my God, but, would it ever. But any information would really help the family. 
maybe even Nicole herself will hear this podcast and what we talked about will jar her memory somehow. Oh my God, how great would that be? Nicole's cousin Danny, who prompted us to take the case, she thinks that uh, Nicole may still be out there alive. Here's more audio of Danny talking about that. Hmm. I just wanted to say that I'd like to believe that she's still alive out there, that she's somewhere and she's safe and she's happy and she's living a great life. Um, she just doesn't know who she used to be or who she is or who she is to us. I don't, I don't know, but I'd like to think that she's still alive. Um, thank you again. And uh, I look forward to hearing this episode. And thank you, Danny, for sharing this with us and trusting us with uh, Nicole's story. That means a lot. Art Moran, Nicole's father, shares Danny's hope that uh, Nicole is still alive. And here's more audio of Art speaking about Nicole with a reporter in 2014. Towards the end of my life, maybe I'll get a knock on the door. Maybe she'll come in and she'll say, here's your grandchildren. I mean, that would be great. It's, it's very possible. Isn't it? It's very, very possible. You know, the strange thing is that my wife, she had a, a boy from a previous marriage before we got married. Her husband took that boy to California when he was very young. And you know, one day that boy knocked on the door and he said, hi, mom. Yeah, about 15 years after, I answered the door. And there he was. He says, hi, Mom, here I am. So why shouldn't I believe that the same thing could happen with Nicole? I just remain hopeful that whatever happened, that Nicole is okay and one day we will reconnect. Probably if she's alive, she's got that hope too. Oh, so heartbreaking. There are possibilities that Nicole is still alive. I mean, we can't prove that she's not. Oh, it would just be uh, wonderful if she is. A websleuth.com poster in 2005 commented that Nicole Moran's photo had been recognized by a now defunct website. Her photo had been seen on a CD-ROM from a Dutch pedophile ring. We've been unable to verify these claims. If true, it may indicate that Nicole was alive at least for a period of time after her disappearance. There have been other famous cases where years later a missing child turns up. I remember watching a TV movie of the week called I Know My Name is Steven. Do you remember that one? Mm, sounds familiar. The story of Steven Stainer, who was kidnapped in 1972 when he was seven and held until 1979 when he was 14 by a pedophile who kept him just 200 miles away from his home in Merced, California. Terrifying, disgusting, but glad he's alive. Stephen was discovered helping another boy, also captured and held by the same man, to reunite with his own family. Stephen couldn't remember his last name, but he famously said, I know my name is Stephen, and there's a book about it as well. Mm -hmm. His captor, Kenneth Parnell, was convicted and spent five of a seven-year sentence in jail, so... That's not right. It is not right, no. That is not right. It is accurate, but it is not right. Oh, God. He was caught trying to buy another four-year-old boy in 2003. What the fuck? He died in the California Medical Facility in Vacaville, California in 2008. And I think that's the medical facility that they hold pedophiles in uh, permanently. I hope he died a slow, painful death. 
I don't know. I'm weeing hope. Stephen himself died in a motorcycle accident in 1989. Oh, poor guy. Interestingly, Stephen's younger brother, Carrie Stainer, was arrested and convicted in the murders of four women in 1999. This made him a serial killer. He's still in jail in California awaiting the death penalty. Oh, wow. Bizarre, eh? Jeez, you can't script this stuff. No. Another famous case with more positive outcomes is that of Elizabeth Smart, now Elizabeth Ann Gilmore. Yep, I remember this case. She escaped her captors after nine months of captivity that had her raped repeatedly and tied up a lot of the time. Yep. She went on to become an activist, uh, got married, obviously, and became a true crime journalist. I guess she's turning her story into an asset. Good. I mean, if you can leverage something negative into a positive and improving your life, then... Well, that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. <laughs> With this. True enough. Uh, one can only hope that Nicole Moran's case will turn out this way, uh, but there's no trace of the vivacious little girl who disappeared on that hot and sticky morning almost 33 years ago. If you have any information on Nicole Moran's whereabouts, please contact... Toronto Metropolitan Police Department at 416-808-2200 or the Royal Canadian Mounted Police at 877-318-3576. All information may be submitted anonymously and quote these numbers, NCMEC, number RCMP 8608792 or NCIC number M-97450809, and I know I went through those very quickly, but they will be in the show notes as well. Yep. And you may think, oh, well, I have something, but it's too small. Nothing is too small. The tiniest bit of information can be helpful to investigators. Absolutely. It can be the clue needed to crack open a world of evidence. If you know anything at all, please contact them. Uh, as well, you can go to missingkids.ca and, and give tips there about Nicole or any other missing children cases in Canada. Search for the name of the child who's missing and give the information that you know. Don't hold anything back, folks, just because you feel like it's not enough to talk about. Yeah. Theories. Dennis Melvin Howe, mm -hmm. the, the guy who uh, disappeared across the border, and I think he's probably the best... Well, from what I'm hearing in this episode, he is the... He's the suspect for sure in the, in the Sharon Morningstar. Yeah. Keenan murder. I, I do have to agree with uh, an earlier theory of... I, I would tend to think it's somebody who resides in that building or has a friend and was visiting. Like, the person has to be connected to the building, in my opinion. Back then, the the... Most security that you had was a buzzer. Yeah, but somebody's not going to just, oh, here's an apartment. Let me go in this apartment. Maybe a kid will walk by. Like I really get the feeling that it was just you know, either the person had been keeping an eye on her, following her, stalking her. That's uh, usually the case. And then uh, this was the moment and took her. Or... She's been, she had been said to have been frequenting the pool every day. So, yeah. Okay, right. Yeah. So it could have been somebody. In your in investigating, after she left the home, did anybody see her? Poof. Not on the elevator? No. Nothing. Okay. So, yeah, I, I almost think like it would it, even be the same floor. Somebody, oh, hey, or 
because so, if the person was down or did she pool, even take the elevator well that's what i mean like on, on her floor somebody like as she's going to the elevator somebody oh hey you know well she, she might have taken the stairs and there might have been a creep in the stairwell come on if you were a kid would you take the stairs or the elevator <laughs> yeah, well, i take the elevator if it's down i used to like to run downstairs yeah yeah i be in the penthouse i would tend to think uh the elevator would be the more appealing for a job but i feel extremely confident that it would be somebody in that building somebody who had been watching her already knew who she was and didn't wait until she was at the pool to lure her because i would imagine at that time of the day in, in boiling hot summer there'd be people at the pool and they would have said oh yeah no we saw her down here she went with yeah so i would even but think nobody saw her at so the pool. it makes me just think of somebody like on the floor or somebody you know um who came who well, there's only so many people they could have interviewed. I mean, oh, absolutely. But you know, then could be a great liar. Then how do you get? Well, okay, but the cops come and search in your your apartment as well. How do you get the body out? Who's to say that? Or how do you get the little girl out if it's not a body? If who's it's a to who's to say that girl was ever there? Who's to say that he the plan wasn't you know again it, it had a plan laid out and the plan wasn't to take her as she's going to the pool wait for her and just lure her to you know into the garage because you've been in apartments you know how easy it is like you just go down another floor and then just and, drive away and and just drive away with her mm. and some police can break into the apartment all they want they can go into the apartment all they want if the person's not there not going to see anything. There's some other um, famous cases that eventually I'd like to cover. Uh, one is a local one, specifically um, the case of four-year-old Michael Dunahy who went missing on Sunday, March 24th, 1991. He was uh, at a playground at Blanchard Elementary School in Victoria, B.C., Yeah, oh, I remember this one incredibly. You couldn't live on, on the West Coast at that time and not have it be a part of your life because it was... I, I have yet to see anything covered as uh, intensely. I was still living in Nova Scotia at the time, and I remember it very well there yeah. as well, 4,300 miles away. Yeah, because it was one of those ones where, like, literally the parents turned their back for a few minutes and, and then he's, gone. He's gone. Yeah. Some some presume that he was abducted. Uh, I don't know what else could have happened to him. He was last seen wearing a blue hooded jacket with a red lining. I remember this picture very well. Yep. With red cuffs, a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles t-shirt, multicolored rugby pants, and blue sneakers. Yeah. So if you know where Michael Dunahy is, then uh, the same goes for him. Call the, call the missing kids hotline. Yeah, absolutely. This past weekend, three grown men went missing in BC and they haven't been found. Yeah. How bizarre. Uh, on the afternoon of May 16th, a man named Ben Kilmer went missing. Uh, his work van was found abandoned on Cowichan Lake Road, west of Duncan, and with the engine still running. Yeah. A small amount of blood and his personal items were found inside the van, according to RCMP. Oh, I didn't know that part. Yeah. Like, this was a friend of mine who lived up in uh, Shawnigan Lake. Like, this was a, her hood and, like, the place where she worked, a coffee shop there. That I've been, they've been really plastering because he used to frequent there and stuff like that. Wow. So, yeah. Uh, Kilmer was last spotted on surveillance video at a job site shortly before 11 a.m. the same morning. There's an 8,000 person Facebook group called Find Ben Kilmer that you can join and talk about uh, Ben's disappearance. Mm -hmm. So if you know anything, 
there's been some online fundraising campaigns launched to support Kilmer's wife, Tanya, and their two children, five and two. Um, yeah, they've the GoFundMe has raised over twelve thousand dollars already oh. for for his his young family, oh, which good. is amazing. They're um, going to need more. Their goal was two thousand dollars, and they've already you know good flood them with that. flood them with money. They're going to need it. Kilmer is described on a missing poster as five foot ten, hundred and eighty pounds. RCMP say is short. He has short brown hair and blue eyes. He's clean shaven, and was last wearing light colored pants, a black shirt, and steel toed work boots. And I'll put up his missing poster and stuff as well. And there's another two people who have gone missing. Their names are Dan Archibald and Ryan Daly. Dan is thirty seven, and Ryan is forty three. And they were sailing quite an extensive uh, trip up the West Coast. And they were last seen leaving the Euclid Small Craft Harbor on May 16th, the same day that uh, this other guy was missing. Whoa. According to RCMP, they docked their boat at the harbor on May 13th. They sailed to the western Vancouver Island community from Panama on Archibald's new boat. Okay. It's a big jaunt. Yeah, so it had to be quite a seaworthy boat. Yeah. Yeah. They told friends they were headed to Daly's home, Jordan River, for a few days, but they never showed up. Hmm. And we're hoping that all three of these guys are found safe and sound. Yeah, I didn't know it was three missing. Just thought I just knew the the one. Yep. Wow. Yeah, and uh, I don't think they would be related at all. Yeah, well, your gut would tells you, it tells you no, but it is. Um the same yeah. roughly the same vicinity same yeah, it's very the coincidence is weird yeah but same vicinity same uh same day if these fellows were sailing it's most likely a uh an incident at sea hopefully not but, but the weather's been so great it's been beautiful like yeah <sighs> so before we go we want to give some shout outs to a pile of new patreon patrons uh, i was Ooh. quite surprised this week i like the sound of that <laughs> Uh, the first one is Kathy Lamanis, a longtime family friend from Burnaby, BC. Thank you, Kathy. Oh, thanks, Kathy. She is uh, somebody I like to give a hug to every time I see, and I'll give her an extra one for you, Scott. Aww. Uh, Crystal Duke, uh, she pledged on Patreon and sent us an interesting story idea about something that happened in Durham, Ontario. Oh, intrigued. So, Thanks, Krista. Thank uh, you, I will Krista. add it to my list of over 200 stories. <laughs> Thanks, Krista. Uh, Amelia Beza from North Vancouver. Hey, uh, Amelia. Thank you Welcome. very much. Welcome. Rachel Franzen, another prime minister. Wow. She's from Palmer, Arkansas. So I think that makes five at this point. Wow. But like, I, I guess in our, in our prime ministerial ship, you don't need to be a Canadian citizen. No, you can be a prime minister of dark poutine if you want. We're breaking down borders over here, man. Exactly. Uh, Bonnie Gibson, another longtime family friend. She's from uh, Coquitlam, BC. Thanks, Bonnie. Thanks, Bonnie. Uh, Lisa Michelle from Milton, Ontario. Thank you. Thank you. And Morgan Creelman, not to be outdone, our friend from Vancouver who used to work for me, and you've you've already given your sympathies to him. I have. He updated his pledge to prime minister status. Whoa, Morgan. This makes him our first male prime minister. Wow. Yeah, so outnumbered there, Morgan. We're, we're breaking barriers again. We are lay we're pioneers. We are pioneers. We're pretty much. We have the most female prime ministers of any country. That's right. The country of, of any yard. Exactly. 
Exactly. It's amazing. Exactly. Where is all, we should get a Nobel Prize, Peace Prize. Yeah. I highly doubt that's ever going to happen. Oh, Mike, don't be such a doubter. Steph Page from Brunswick in Australia. Thank you, Steph. Hey, hey, Steph. Marianne Mosley from Ocala, Florida. Oh, hi, Marianne Mosley. Adele Bro. I think that's a bro, B R O U G H, or broth. I was <laughs> just going to say thanks, Adele. <laughs> thanks. Hello. Hi. Uh, you know Adele? Yeah, I do. I get, I get the joke. I just didn't laugh. From Cheshire in Great Britain. Maybe it is Adele. Yeah, oh, totally. It's got to yeah, be her. It's got to yeah, be her. It's totally got to be her. Why didn't, hey, why aren't you a prime minister then, Adele? Yeah, exactly. Also, Virginie uh, from Quebec, she sent us some donut money over PayPal <gasps> along with an email of an interesting but gruesome story about fate. Oh. And so I actually said that I would, uh, I told Virginie that I would uh, tell her story. Okay. So here it goes. I have a very dramatic and quite gruesome story that have been told to me by my mother. It's happened to her uncle when she was a child. And if you watched any of the Final Destination movies, this is going to leave you wondering if fate really is a thing. Hmm. My mom was born in 1955, so I presume this must have happened sometime in the 60s. Her uncle, Fernand, was a worker at Alcan, now known as Rio Tinto Aluminum, in Saguenay, Lac Saint-Jean. Listen to me with my I, I am French accent. I am. He was off work and he was homesick with a cold, but his boss called him requesting that he get in because they were understaffed. Fernand refused a couple of times because he wasn't feeling well, but his boss insisted and so he gave in and headed to the plant. Now my mom, being a child back then, told me this story the best she could. I don't really want to ask my grandmother about it and I think you'll understand why. But Fernand was working on a platform above a giant grinder-like machine. Oh. This platform was in two parts and could open above the grinder. Oh, oh. I think you know what's coming. Oh, oh. Somewhere, somehow, a tiny spark appeared and floated into the air. It landed on the platform's operation console and obviously right where it shouldn't have ended up. This spark triggered the mechanism and the platform swung open with Fernand still standing on it. Oh my god. He fell down in the grinder waist deep. His lower body was basically crushed and severed almost instantly. Oh. The machine was stopped, but obviously there was nothing much anyone could do. However, Fernand was still alive. Oh my god. Being the 60s, the first person they called wasn't a medic, but a priest, because obviously he wasn't going to make it. Oh. When the priest saw the scene, he was so shocked he dropped the Bible into the grinder. That had been turned off, as stated before. Fernand stretched over the Bible and handed it right back to the priest, despite being only one half of a man by now. Oh my god. Really? That, wow. After being pulled out of there, he lived three days at the hospital. Wow. I wonder if they would have been able to save him if this had happened in modern times. But oh. here it is. Wow. She says, I found the story so unbelievable when my mom first told it to me and I thought it'd be interesting to you. Keep up the great work. Love listening to you every day. Oh, thank you for sharing that and very gruesome. It's very gruesome. Oh. Thanks, Virginie. Yeah, and I'm sorry for your family there. Wow. Yes. Horrifying. Wow. Wow. Talk about a workplace incident there. No kidding. Wow. Poor Uncle Fernand. Oh, no kidding. Uh, apparently I butchered one of our patrons' names, and she sent me a correction in the Umberyard, and I, I verified that correction today. It's happened a few times, Mike. Yes, I know. <laughs> According to what she wrote, 
I should be pronouncing her name Ilea. 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 Ilea Wilmot. I love that name. Ilea. 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 See, I said it correct a whole bunch of times. Ilea. I've Ilea. never said it incorrectly, so. That's correct because you've never said it before. Hey, let's not get bogged down in the semantics. In the I've semantics never, of the nonsense. I've never said it incorrectly. Ilea. What a great name. Ilea Wilmot. Thank you very much. I got you. And back. you are a funny person and we appreciate your... Uh, your, your patronage and your participation in the Umber Yard. Totes do, Ilea. So yeah, like please join us in the Umber Yard. Because uh, like I say, you can actually interact with us and correct me on my, my shitty pronunciations of your names. That's pretty much all it's for now. <laughs> it's just name correction. My, it's, it, I think I'm thinking about changing the name of it to Mike is an idiot. Well, that's what we call it when you're not around. Shit. Yeah. You know what you can do? And you're actually wearing a hat right now. I can shit in it? You can go shit in your hat. I actually told a guy to go shit in his hat today. Oh, good. Christy Foster posted on Podcasts We Listen To Facebook group, Dark Poutine is amazing. Mike Brown is storytelling perfection. Well, thank you. No ah or um or hesitations. Thanks a lot to editing. <laughs> I was just going to say she clearly hasn't edited the podcast. No mouth noises <laughs> or background distractions. His banter with Scott is great and his voice is like butter. Mm. It's five stars. Christy, I get to sit next to him every time we do this. <laughs> it's very buttery. So this, this guy named Liam McShane said, Poutine is a feckin' horrific tasting dish, so the name alone means I'm not going to listen. It's <laughs> feckin' horrific. Yeah, so it got a lot of replies, uh, 33 to be exact. Oh. But after about five um, is when I discovered the post and yeah. chimed in saying, Liam McShane, you can go shit in your hat. Uh, <laughs> I have about a thousand hats, so I'm okay with that. What? How can that? Does that make it okay? It's a lot of shitting. Yeah. But anyway, uh, we, we had a good laugh and, and I think Liam and I are buddies now. You know what, Liam? I bet you're listening right now, buddy. Yeah, he might be. Yeah, you he gave in. You gave in. He might you have given in. And as soon as you hear that we're talking about you, guaranteed you're going to come listen, Liam. And not only that, you'll probably tell some friends that were pretty cool. And it is a feckin' awesome meal. It you, is. You can't, if you're just judging it based on the description, I get it. But try it, man. Try it. Just try, try it. it. You'll try, regret it. Try it. You will start injecting that shit. Exactly. So thanks to everybody who uh, pledged to us on Patreon. You can do it too uh, at patreon.com slash darkpoutine or send us some donut money via PayPal at our email address darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. Madison Paquin, yes, I am working on getting your stuff onto swag. And uh, hopefully once I'm done editing this episode, we'll have it up. And Madison's Instagram, again, is Instagram.com slash Madison Paquin. Yeah, I, I messaged her the other day just to, just to give her a personal thank you. Thank yeah. You. What, what an awesome, awesome thing she did. And what a great, what great little art. Absolutely. Check out our website, www.darkpoutine.com for show notes and other cool stuff. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Dark Poutine and tell your friends. You can subscribe to us on your favorite podcast directory, iTunes, Podcast, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or at our host, Podbean. Whew. And uh, I have a couple of podcast promos Sweet. this week. Sweet. 
our first is uh, is whining about crime. So you want to listen to another cool true crime podcast? Whining about crime is one of them. And, and here we go. Hi, I'm the crime whiner from Whining About Crime, a podcast that searches for the disconnect in true crime cases, the things that make a case more complicated than it seems on the surface. So please come join me at Whining About Crime. You'll know you found me when you hear me say, please don't leave me. Oh, the music was great. Yes, it was, it was pretty good. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I'm intrigued. Yep. So go check out Whining About Crime. Okay. And our next promo comes from Nordic True Crime. Mm. Nordic. Nordic. Nordic track. Vikings. I just think Vikings. I think the uh, exercise machine. Welcome to Nordic True Crime. We are a weekly podcast covering a wide range of crimes from Europe's most northern countries. So if you're after a smorgasbord of real crime from the dark and frozen regions of the Nordics, then give us a try. Find us on iTunes or at nordictruecrime.podbean.com on Twitter and Facebook at Nordic True Crime or on your podcast provider. And as we say in Sweden, ta hand om dig. Uh, so what do you think of that one, Scott? My, my favorite action. Smorgasbord. My fa- I, I, I don't know what it is about the language but it is my just my favorite swedish yeah i, I just i love i love the accent i I, the I do too i think of ikea and abba of, of course not volvo volvo doesn't sweet K- carol will think of swedish meatballs i will think of swedish berries oh they because <laughs> i love because i love candy but they're not swedish at all well, he it says it on the on the bag so check out nordic true crime as well yeah I, I'm I'm also very intrigued. I love I love crime, hearing about crimes from uh, different countries. Yeah, because it's tip, they're typically unless it's some kind of chikatilo, you know, you you're not going to have. Uh, well, that's why I like these these other yeah uh, true crime podcasts that are from like the UK or uh, Jessica's from from the Asian perspective. I, I've watched uh, there was a series of. Uh, uh, true crime based in Australia. I loved it. I can't remember what it was. I think it was on uh, ID and channel, but uh, uh, yeah, I loved it. There's a lot of Aussies in true crime. I know. Yeah. I know. We'll play some promos from them probably next week. Good day. Yeah. Well, speaking of good day, that's it for this episode. Oh, let's keep it going. No, we'll we'll do the after show. Oh, well, there and you that's go, a little for tease. Five dollar huh? plus patrons. Come on, everybody. Get to hear us rant about all kinds of weird things. 
Not always true crime, just <laughs> quite a lot. Mike and Scott being a-holes, really. Pretty much. Pretty much. But you want to hear it. Trust me. So there you go. Don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye.